Well, good morning. You know, it's exciting when you come to this time of the year in the life of the church. The church, uh, you're aware of this, but it functions on trimesters. What I mean by that is the church life goes from September to December, then January to May, and then from uh, June to August. And we're finishing up that third trimester. And you saw in your bulletin, there's so many things happening. There's men's ministry, there's women's ministry, there's a dinner coming up. And that's just the life of the church transitioning to that fall semester. And those are exciting times. So just be in prayer for our church family. I think the sense of those who bring leadership to those things, for the men's ministries, they make those plans and all. For women's ministry, they're planning that dinner and getting things ready there. I think for Haiti and the dinner we have there, and then there's the whole youth ministry. There's a WANA that's going to start up. There's a lot of things happening in the next month for us as a church. So it's just upholding one another in prayer for that, but it's also the anticipation of the good things God's going to do among us over the next several months and everything. So I want everybody to stand up. It's good when we come to the Word of God to, uh, uh, Michael's already prayed, but I, I think there's just things in our own hearts and minds that we need to settle down at times, but uh, we're going to pray a little differently today. Uh, we're going to pray for other people, not for ourselves. So we're going to pray for the person on your right. I'll give you a little time. Then you're going to pray for the person on your left. And some of you are sitting there and say, I have no idea who this person is. And that's when you come to the New Testament and realize when Paul wrote all those letters to those churches... There's some cities he was never at. And he said he prayed for those people every day and regularly. And he never met them. So there's something about prayer for one another. So I'm going to give us a few seconds. And I'll say amen. That means pray for the person on your right. Okay? And then I'll say amen. Then it means pray for the person on your left. And I'll say amen. That means we'll be all done for the Word of God. And just pray for their hearts to be settled. Uh, that somehow through the God's Spirit, He's able to teach each one of us today. Uh, whether from the Word, whether cross-reference illustration, somehow, maybe a conversation that they even have with you, maybe what God used in their life today, but somehow, that the Spirit of God and the Lord Jesus Christ meets each of us where we are today to cultivate that walk that we want to have with Him, that we become more and more like Him, or as the Scripture would say, conformed to His image. So let's all bow our heads and close our eyes. We'll get this in order. Now pray for the person on the right of you. Amen. Now pray for the person on the left of you. Amen. May I have a seat? Open your Bibles with me to Psalm 84. Psalm 84. When January rolls around in our home, uh, I start getting excited for the summer. I have this tendency to start thinking ahead and planning for our summer. There's that sense of anticipation of what vacation is going to be like and where we are going to go. And probably for the last 20 years... We've pretty much gone to the same place. We've gone to Ocean City, Maryland, where my mom lives. And that anticipation starts bringing about ideas that we want to do. When I start thinking of Ocean City, Maryland, I think of the beach in the sand. When I think of Ocean City, Maryland, I start thinking of Thrasher's Fries. 
When I get, think of Ocean City, Maryland, I think of the boardwalk that goes about 32 blocks, about three miles. When I think of Ocean City, Maryland, I'm also thinking of gelatis at uh, Rita's. And there's these things that just come to your mind. There's sort of a yearning, this anticipation. And if you've gone back to the same place for years, some place that you vacation on a regular basis, you know what I'm talking about. You know what it's going to be like. Uh, there's things when you get there you want to repeat. There's somehow you want to do the same thing over and over again. But, but after comes that planning part, there, there actually becomes the actual trip to get you there. There's the journey. And we plan our trips. Our journeys go different every year. We drive to certain places and spend the night. We may stop in Gettysburg on the way this year and check out what took place there. We stop in different places, may spend the night with a friend this time, but we plan the journey, and the journey takes us a while before we get to Ocean City, Maryland, and we get to my mom's house. And then comes the day we get there. Their journey's all done. And for me, I've told you this before, we drive to the inlet in Ocean City, I park the car, you get 15 minutes free parking time, no matter what time of the day it is. I drive in there, I park the car right as close as I can to the beach. While the whole family stays in the car, I run down the beach, I get all the way down to the water, and I jump into the water, and I let the water lap up on my feet. And to prove to my family I'm there, I take a pic... Cell phones. I take a picture of my feet, of all things. And I send a picture of my feet to my family, my group family, uh, that I'm in Ocean City, Maryland, and I finally made it. And then we drive to my mom's place, and we hang out for the rest of the time. Now, we plan vacations. We plan anticipation, things like that. But in the Old Testament, God's people were to take a journey three times a year to the city of Jerusalem. It wasn't a vacation. It was an actual pilgrimage. It was a planned trip. And they were supposed to go to Jerusalem and there is where they worship God. It's understanding the special place of Jerusalem. We have no place like this today. For the nation of Israel, it's understanding what transpired when they built that first tabernacle in Exodus 40. The tabernacle is built and everything's in place. And the Ark of the Covenant is there. The Ark of the Covenant is a mercy seat where the priest would uh, sprinkle the blood on for forgiveness. And the two cherubims and their wings would touch over the center. And all of a sudden, they finished the tabernacle. The ark was there in the Holy of Holies of the Holy Place, and everything was built. As soon as it was complete, and all of a sudden, the Shekinah glory of God came down over the tabernacle and filled the Holy of Holies and resided between those cherubim. And God's presence was actually there. So when the people of Israel wandered around in the wilderness, God, with that Ark of the Covenant, was there with them. Now, when Solomon built the temple, you get to Second uh, or First Samuel seven, and, and all he builds a temple, and all of a sudden the temple gets all done and is completed. And there's a prayer of dedication by Samuel for the temple, and all of a sudden it identifies a cloud that comes over the the temple, and all of a sudden it swoops in, it fills over the Ark of the Covenant, the Shekinah glory, meaning God is present here. As the psalmist is writing. He's identifying the fact that they come to Jerusalem to worship because God is there. It's the demonstration of God's presence with the nation of Israel. It demonstrates His blessing upon Him, the covenant upon Him. And this idea of the children of Israel trekking to Jerusalem, to this special place. 
in order to come up to where the priest was, the special priest, in order to take this special pilgrimage, was a walk of life, the way of life for the Old Testament saint. And this pilgrimage was part of life. We get to the New Testament, we even hear of Jesus. When he's 12 years old, he shows up in the temple. You ever ask yourself, why does the family travel with a 12-year-old to Jerusalem, walking all that way to get there? It's part of life of the Jewish people. To go to that place, to meet God face to face. When our psalmist is talking here about yearning to see God, this is not some spiritual experience out up on a mountain. This is coming to the temple, to the real presence of God. This is coming to the place where the priest makes a sacrifice for their sins. This is where they get to see their sins are forgiven. And as the psalmist writes this psalm, he's going to take us through this whole journey of a pilgrimage. He's going to be sitting at his home like in the first four verses. And you just get this sense of his planning, his yearning, his desire to go to Jerusalem. I just wish I could be there. And then when we get to verse 5 to 7, he actually then records his journey, how he goes there, what takes place, how God moves in his life and meets his needs. Then we get to verse 8, and he's finally arrived. And what's the first thing he does when he arrives? And what takes place when he gets there? And in the midst of this psalm, over and over again is repeated one theme. That Yahweh, the God, the Lord of hosts, blesses, puts his stamp of approval upon the pilgrim who journeys to Jerusalem. There's somehow God's anticipation of his followers, of his saints, that there's this something within us that draws us to him. And in the process of being drawn to him, this journey to him, he blesses us along the way. Look at verse 4 there in your Bible. Notice how he finishes off that first paragraph, that first uh, stanza where he closes off with, Blessed! That's God. That's what psalmist say. Blessed is the one who dwells there at the temple. Look at verse 5. He again starts off with, Blessed is one who is strengthened by God. Look at verse 12. He closes the whole psalm off with how blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. He wants us to understand that somehow this relationship he's describing, this journey that he takes, this sense of anticipation to see God, to somehow come into the presence of God, of building that relationship, that in the process of desiring that, in that process of drawing near, in that process of journeying there, he wants us to understand God blesses the pilgrim. God blesses the saint. God puts his hand of approval upon those who do such a thing. So the first four verses, he describes that yearning that he has. Here's how he describes it. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found a house. And the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. This is anticipation. It's like he's sitting at home planning out his whole journey, his pilgrimage to get to Jerusalem. 
as he anticipates, he starts thinking this through. You know, I'm just excited about the God. And as he describes him here, the lovely places where God dwells, the Lord of hosts, that Lord of hosts, Lord of Sabaoth, describes God's relationship to his universe. The idea of being the Lord of hosts is the idea he's one who commands an army. He's the one who's the great warrior. He's one who gives that sense of attention to all his action in the world. And the psalmist has recognized God's in charge of all things. He's got an army to protect himself. And in the process, he anticipates, he thinks of this dwelling place of God in Jerusalem. He then speaks of what that means to him. My soul longs, yearns for what? The courts of the Lord. Well, that's the reason there's a courts. It's understand the temple was built, the tabernacle was built in the temple in, the, in this way. What you had was the holy place, which was made of the holy place and the holy of holies. And the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant. But in front of that was the altar, and in front of that was the courts. Only the priest could go into the Holy of Holies. No Old Testament saint could go there. Just the priest. The psalmist understands the limitations of where they can go. They can only go into the courts. That's where they're allowed to be. And as they come into the court, he anticipates, I want to be in the courts. I want to be near to God. He anticipates that yearning for that. He then continues and says, what is this then? My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. And then he says this. The bird has found a place in a house, and the swallow nests for herself, where she lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts. And it's like he gets there and he looks around and he says, You know, there's all these birds that get to hang out here. We call them pigeons. And you know how you go downtown and, and the pigeons just somehow hang out on the buildings. Uh, they somehow find the monuments and they just sort of hang out on the monuments. They find all little nooks and crannies and they nest there and he identifies, you know, what would be the most wonderful thing as a follower of God is to be able to dwell like the bird, like the swallow, like the pigeon that gets to nest here and live their whole life here with God. He continues on. He says, Even your altars, O Lord, O host, my God and King, then his blessing. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They're ever praising you. To understand what took place. He's speaking here, those who dwell there are the Levites and priests. They were set up with responsibility. There's a group of Levites who their whole responsibility was to sing unto the Lord. Others took care of the whole compound and facilities. Priests who went in made the sacrifices of the animals. He says, you know, I wish I could dwell there. It's understanding the Old Testament when the land was divided up. Every tribe got a piece of land except the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi was to take care of the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And they also got pieces of property, I'll say. They're called cities of refuge. For each one of the other tribes. So if there was a crime, something happened, you could go to a city. Of, and, and Levites lived there. But they weren't given land. That's why offerings were brought for them. Because they couldn't raise crops. They had no land. He's identifying there are those, the priests and the Levites, who have the privilege of dwelling where God is. And he yearns to be the pilgrim who comes into the presence of God. And he anticipates he can dwell there 
for at least a period of time and be near to God. That sets the heart. That's the yearning that he has. But he has to get there. And he describes that journey in verses 5 to 7. Just imagine you're sitting somewhere that you're going to come to Bartlett to worship God. And you find yourself down in Naperville. And all of a sudden you're making that anticipation. How do you get from Naperville to Bartlett? You take a journey. Or from Peoria to Bartlett, you take a journey. Or from Ocean City to Bartlett, you take a journey. And he describes the journey, the way of getting there. What do you walk through? How does that happen? Here's this description. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. He says, here's what's really important. If you're going to make a journey to see God, you're going to have to be strengthened within. That journey is going to take time and energy. It's going to take times where you're going to be through rain. If in this area, snow. It's where you're going to go through the weather to make that journey. And in the process of doing that, he identifies, look, the one making a journey like this is blessed. Not because of strength they have in themselves. They're blessed because of the strength they have in God. And all of a sudden there's this confidence in this journey and walk that God's going to strengthen us along the way. It's as though the pilgrim understood that, you know what? You don't have that rousing experience with God every day. Uh, There's periods of time between those moments on the mountain. That somehow it's not always that experience of God is great and this is the most wonderful thing that's ever happened to me. There's dark days. There's difficult days. There's the valley of shadow of death where we need to be strengthened along the way, not by who we are, the strength that we have in God who strengthens us. And he describes this process here. He then continues on and he says, look, verse 6, passing through the valley of Bacan, and this could be balsam trees, no one's sure where it is, but see, you're going through a valley and they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. He describes the journey. He says, look, if you're going to journey, especially in Israel there, you're going to go from spring to spring. You're going to go from waterhole to waterhole. It is not like there's a river that runs all the way through. You just walk along the river. No, you go through wilderness places. You go through desert places. You go through valleys. There's no water. And you're going to be strengthened by the water that God provides periodically along the way that strengthens you to keep going. That somehow you come up to that one pool of water. You're going to fill your canteen, your water jug. You're going to get that water bottle filled with water. You're going to drink while you're there up the water that you need and carry more with you that you're strengthened to get to the next water hole on your journey. He says, understand we go on a journey like this. God's the one who strengthens us. That all of a sudden we find strength to continue on the journey not because of who we are, but because of who He is. And with our confidence in Him, He strengthens us along the journey. So as a pilgrim anticipates his trip, prepares to go, 
puts everything in place. He finally takes off. And as he takes off, he realizes the best thing that happens here is that God blesses those on the journey. He strengthens them along the way that they can finally arrive through the highways and the byways to Zion, to Jerusalem, to the city of God. And then the psalmist arrives. Verse 8. And what would you anticipate he does when he gets there? He's finally made it to the place of the temple. He's finally gotten to where God is. He's finally there to come to do what he wanted to do. He's finally in the presence of God. And here's how he responds. O Lord God of hosts. Keep in mind, this guy's just had this journey through the valley there. This guy's gone through this long process to get there. Has he sent the God of, of the armies of God protecting him all along the way? Has God's protection gotten him there? That he finally rejoices who God is and he says this, Give ear, O God of Jacob, to what? My prayer. He arrives in the presence of God. His journey is finally complete. And what he wants to do is commune with God. Have prayer with God. And here's his request. Behold our shield, O God, and that's that protection that God has given him. And look upon the face of your anointed. The anointed one is the king. And the psalmist understands when he arrives that the king is there who reigns over the nation of Israel. And his prayer that he anticipates, he recognizes, God, you're the shield who's protected me on this long journey. You're the one who strengthened me all along the way. I have a request, Lord. I want you to do the shielding for our king as well. For the anointed one, I pray for. Uh, somehow the pilgrim understands the importance of prayer for leadership. That some of those, how those who provide leadership to God's people need prayer. That somehow when God's people come into the presence of God, they recognize there's a ministry that takes place, and it's more than them. And the importance of God caring and leading and providing and protecting for the leaders of that ministry. The psalmist understands the king, your anointed one, needs prayer. And it's God's people. When we come into the presence of God, being reminded that the leaders of even the local church need prayer. That God provides for them and protects for them. And the psalmist just understands when they come to the presence of God, his prayer is for the leader of the nation of Israel. And then he continues describing that prayer, that description, and he talks about what it's really like to get there. What's it feel like when you finally arrive? Here's his description. Verse 10. For a day, that is, one day, in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I've made this whole journey to Jerusalem. And you need to understand, one day, just one day here in the court, one day in the presence of God, is better than three years out there. One day in your presence is better than three years out there. One day here, God, is better than a thousand days out there. 
God, your presence, my opportunity to be here is better than anything, anywhere I could have ever imagined. He describes it even more than that. I would rather stand at the threshold as New American Standard doorkeeper. As for the NIV and the SV, I'd rather be the doorkeeper of the house. I'd rather just stand right on the edge of getting in. I'd rather be there than in the tents of wickedness. I think when we hear that, that our immediate response is, well, of course I'd rather be there than in the tents of wickedness. Who would ever want to be in the tents of sin? And I do think we think that way, but I want you to think about how we may hang out in those tents of wickedness more than we think we do. Uh, We talk about our sins of commission. Those are sins that we commit that we know are wrong. And we try to stay away from those. We have our sins of omission. Those are the things we're supposed to do that we somehow forget to do. And we understand that. But I think at times we forget how our hearts are somehow drawn by attitudes, somehow drawn by motives, somehow drawn by envy or jealousy for other things. That instead of us saying, better is one day in your courts, we may say, say, it'd be better if I had a bigger house. Instead of better in one day in your court, it'd be better if I made more money. If better in your courts, I didn't have curly hair. And if you had curly hair, you know what you want straight here. You know, that somehow in our hearts, instead of really better one day in your courts, we think of all the other things be better if I had. We even do it as a church. If we had more people, if we had more money, if we had better facilities, if we had bigger facilities, fill in the blank. And our hearts are really sitting out in the tents of wickedness. Though we sing a song that says, better is one day in your court. Folks, we need to examine our hearts. Our minds are really quick to identify. Oh, I want to be this psalmist. I want to be a pilgrim like this. I want one day in his courts better than a thousand elsewhere. But our hearts need to be examined. Do we find those lusts, those envies, those things that we think would make life better? Oh, there's some things we think would be better, but we'd never say. Might think it's better if we had a different spouse. Better if we had a different kids. Better if we had different parents. Better if we went to a different school. And we fill in the blanks with what could make life better if we had. And all of a sudden, it's those lusts, those envies, those jealousies that really put us out in the tents of wickedness. 
and not in the court. Now we sing wonderful songs that speak truth like this. About our heart, about being the presence of God. We'll raise our hands, we'll sing as loud as we can. And there may not be those sins of commission or those sins of omission, and we look really good. But our hearts, our hearts really want more, want something different, want something changed. And then, and then, things will be better. Things will be right. Then we can do things. The psalmist understands that is not the heart of a pilgrim. The heart of the pilgrim understands better is one day in your court than a thousand days elsewhere. And as he finally arrives there, that time in the presence of God allows him to know that that's who he wants to be with. That's the intimacy he wants. That's the relationship he wants. And that is far better than anything else that he could have. It is far better to stand just at the threshold of entering to the court, actually being the guard, the doorkeeper to keep other people out. It is better to stand there, to be right there on the edge than to be somewhere else. It's better to be that close to God, that near to God is far better than anywhere else we could be. And the psalmist continues with that. Picking that up, here's how he describes him. For the Lord God, that's Yahweh Elohim, is a sun and a shield. Those are protectors. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly or walk in integrity. And he concludes it with, the Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. And that closing blessing that the psalmist puts. You know, as the psalmist goes through here, he wants us to understand that God blesses and strengthens the pilgrim who draws near to him and who trusts him. That what God is looking for are pilgrims who will draw near to him and trust him. When I became a Christian, I was in uh, Ocean City, New Jersey, not Maryland, on a project with Campus Crusade for Christ. I've been a Christian for probably about, oh, six months, I think, at that time. I've been walking through town that day, and I came across a church. And I went to go inside the church because I wanted to spend some time alone with God. I got to the church, and the door was locked. Around the corner, the other door was locked. So I went back to where I was staying, and I remember talking with Ray that day, and I told Ray my disappointment that I couldn't go to church to meet with God. I remember Ray just looking at me and saying, you know, Mike, God's not in a church building. It's like, what? Now, I knew that. But all of a sudden, as Ray started talking with me, he had to remind me of some very important truths. There is no special person or priest that brings us into the presence of God. There is no special pilgrimage 
that we go on to meet with God. There is no special place or sacred place where we meet with God because everything changed when Jesus Christ came. We talked about the Shekinah glory, how it was with the nation of Israel, and it filled the temples. In Ezekiel 11, we find that that Shekinah glory leaves the temple and leaves Israel when they go into Babylonian captivity. It's interesting, when they come back from the Babylonian captivity, the Ark and the Covenant does not return with them, and neither does the glory of God. His presence is not there. The next time we hear of the glory of God is in Luke chapter 2. I think at times we miss what really takes place. It's the story of the birth of Christ. And the angels sing, glory to God in the highest. And it says there that the glory of the Lord shone round about the shepherds. I think when we read that and hear that story, what we think it's God's glory shining down from heaven, sort of reflecting on the earth. And when the angels go away, poof, away went the glory. But that's not the point of the passage at all. Because all of a sudden what happened on that day was glory came back to the earth. Indicating what? God was present again. Because Jesus Christ is the one who shows us God's glory of who he is. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the God in the flesh, lives on this earth. And when he dies on the cross, may recall reading this and hearing the story When he dies on the cross, all of a sudden there's an earthquake and everything, and it describes in the temple the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. The veil was torn from the top, not the bottom. It was torn from the bottom because some people did it. It tore from the top down. And when that occurred, it opened up the holy of holies. And all of a sudden, the place that God was to be, that only the priests come in, all of a sudden, when Christ died on the cross, he opens up the whole thing for all of us and indicates now there is no special place. There is no special priest. There is no special pilgrimage because now we come to Christ face to face. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10 with me. Hebrews chapter 10. What the psalmist teaches us is the fact that Yahweh wants to bless us and strengthen us. And it's the pilgrim who finds himself drawing near to God and the one who trusts in him. But in application with the New Testament, we need to see how this plays out for us. Because all of a sudden, as the psalmist writes here, I'm saying as the Hebrews author writes here, he brings into play, what does this really mean for us? This is a really important doctrine. The whole Reformation was built off of this. The priesthood of the believer, that every one of us as followers of Jesus Christ, as believers in Jesus Christ, have access to the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ, which builds a relationship with one another and identifies that we too, as pilgrims, draw near to God and trust in God. 
through Jesus Christ. Here's what we read. Hebrews chapter 10. And starting at uh, verse 19. Now, the author of Hebrews has gone through demonstrating that Jesus Christ is the high priest. He's greater than the priest. He's greater than angels. He made this one sacrifice for all our sins. This is sort of bringing a lot of the material together. And starting verse 19, it brings together the holy place with the blood of Christ and our access to the Father. Here's what we read. Since, therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he, is, he who promises faithful... And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as the day drawing near. This passage, I think, reiterates what the psalmist is saying, but identifying the new relationship we have through Jesus Christ. That through Christ's death and resurrection, he opened the veil through his body and blood and gave us full access to the Father. And with that access to God through our faith in Jesus Christ, we now draw near to the Father in full confidence. No special place, no special pilgrimage, no special priest except the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we may say, better is one day in your court, but we can go there every single day. Not a place, but a person and a relationship. And in doing that, we find ourselves gathering them with other believers. Finding ways to stimulate and encourage one another. In our walk with the Son, but also in our relationship with God. That we do find ourselves following Yahweh. Following the Lord of hosts. The one who blesses and strengthens his pilgrims who find themselves drawing near and trusting in him. You know, folks, that's what we need to do. We're called to do the very same thing. That we may find ourselves saying one day in his courts and his presence is better, is better than a thousand elsewhere. That one day in his court is better than anything else that we can have. And though we may yearn for that, we find ourselves in a journey which sometimes gets pretty dark, sometimes discouraging, and knowing that God blesses and strengthens us with confidence in him. That somehow we get through those dark days and we come to the presence of God and see Him face to face again. We're relieved to give our prayer to Him, but hear again that blessing that we're ones who trust Him. It's because yet Yahweh finds Himself blessing and strengthening His pilgrims who find themselves drawing near and trusting in Christ. 
So we find ourselves saying, better is one day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere. Let's close in prayer. Lord, what a wonderful truth we have that from the psalm that you're one who looks forward to having that relationship with your followers who are pilgrims on this earth. That you're the God who blesses us, that you're the God who strengthens us on that journey. But there were also people who desired to draw near and to trust in you. But we give you great thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ that through our faith and trust in him, through his death and resurrection, that we do have a new relationship with you that allows us to draw near with confidence because of what he has done. That we're your people who find ourselves knowing that one day in your court is far better than a thousand elsewhere. So God, work in our hearts that you draw us near. Make us a people who trust in you. Let us sense your strength on a daily basis as you're the one who blesses us in our walk with you. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.